Should schools reopen? Should parents feel comfortable with sending their children to school environments in the midst of a pandemic that is unmitigated in the United States of America? Should teachers and staff feel confident their health will not be endangered this school year? I sat down to converse with Dr. Jamita Barlow, a public health professional on these questions. We need to hear public health professionals and their perspectives. You will find her insights helpful. Though our time together was limited, limited, there were crucial points here for all to take note on. Just a small note, the audio for the interview was not up to par due to me not having my microphone. However, the content is relevant and timely. If you have any questions, feel free to send those to me at info at takejoyandlearning.com. Jamita Nicole Barlow, a Charlottesville, Virginia native, is a community health psychologist, trained emotional emancipation circle facilitator, and an assistant professor of writing in the university writing program. In addition, she also serves as an affiliate faculty member in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies program, and also in the Milken Institute School of Public Health, Health's Jacob Institute of Women's Health at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Barlow utilizes decolonizing methodologies to disrupt cardiometabolic syndrome and structural policies adversely affecting Black girls and women's health, as well as intergenerational trauma. She has spent 22 years in transdisciplinary disciplinary collaborations with physicians, public health practitioners, researchers, policy administrators, activists, political appointees, and community members in diverse settings throughout the world. So welcome to the Joy of Learning podcast. Today, I am incredibly excited to have Dr. Janita Barlow with us. And we're gonna be discussing this reopening of schools, um, looking at it from the perspective um, from kindergarten all the, way, all the way through college. And I'm just excited to have Dr. Barlow with us to discuss and just talk about this because there's a lot of anxiety right now. There are a lot of discussions happening. Would you agree, Dr. Barlow? Yes, for sure. A lot of people are on edge and it's important to have this conversation. Yes. So I'm glad we're able to have this conversation together. And so um, based upon your experiences, which you have many of them, a plethora of experiences, you work in higher education. And so what is returning to the school or returning to a university for students look like for this upcoming semester or quarter? Or what does it look like for professors too? Right, that's a complex question. So um, I'll talk about it from you know the student perspective, the staff perspective, um, and the faculty perspective, and as well as kind of some of the differences between K twelve and K through twelve and higher ed. So let's start with like K through twelve. I'm talking also like pre K. Mm -hmm. um, parents, a lot of parents have been homeschooling basically since March of this year, mm -hmm. and many it's been a challenge finding a way for their child to stay engaged 
dealing with any potential technology issues that are, but also the very real issue of explaining a pandemic to a child, explaining to them why they can't go to the playground, explaining um, why they can't be with their classmates and their friends, and all they want to do is go play. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's a major challenge. And then this time of year, after a summer, and you know, kids look forward to going back to school and seeing their friends. And so a lot of schools haven't said what they're doing. Some say they're opening, some haven't released their plans yet. But I think there's this real fear um, of having this Petri dish, right? So we know that kids already, when they get together, they usually get sick. If you talk to any teachers, they usually have this period throughout the fall where everyone, there's something going around and everyone gets it. Unfortunately, when you're dealing with a new virus like the COVID-19, there's so much more we're learning about it, even months into it. And it's important that whenever there's something that's unknown as a scientist, it's important that we study it, we observe it, and we take every necessary precaution. And when we learn more, we might change the rules a little. So early on, a lot of discussion was around wearing a mask. Now, um, oh, about not having to wear a mask. And now we're seeing that it is actually very helpful to wear a mask. So a lot of people feel confused. But if you look at the history of science, this has always been the case, that the more we learn, the more we change the regulations and the recommendations. And so right now, when I think about opening schools, when I think about what that looks like on K through 12, I think it's going to have to also be in alignment with brain development, right? And what people have access to. Unfortunately, I think think it is dangerous to open schools, um, especially in high risk areas. And at this point, the way numbers are increasing, most of the US is becoming a high risk area. Here in DC, where I'm located, they've done a really good job. Our numbers haven't increased exponentially like other states, because we're not a state. even though we're trying. Yes, I heard. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, hopefully soon. But even though our numbers haven't increased exponentially, we're in an area where people from Maryland and Virginia come all the time, mm-hmm. and their numbers are much higher than ours. So really paying attention to what measures, what can we do to prevent that? What are things um, that we can put in place? And it would be nice if we had a countrywide regulation on some of these things, yes. but we it's really state-based, it's locality-based. Some counties are doing it and some aren't. Yes. I have to think about that, what the implications are for that. So for kids, I would say who are under 10, or I would say you know pre-K um, and under 10, they're gonna need some type of engagement. Mm-hmm. And so I really think that school systems can play a role, whether that's virtually, whether that's doing something once a week outside, there, there might be a role that schools can play. Mm-hmm. Putting people within 10 feet, I would say it's more than six feet. Based on all the data I've read, it's been saying at least 21 feet that we should be doing. Wow. And that's just possible. Um, the way that spread, droplets spread, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and not possible in many cases, especially in a school setting. If you've ever tried, I'm sure you have, tried to keep someone under 10, um, keep their attention all day in such a setting, that would be darn near impossible. And so I think these are things that school systems have to take into account. One, it's a new virus. Two, yes. the brain development people are and their learning. 
And three, the reality that even if we don't have a lot of young people who are dying of this disease, they are, mm-hmm. and that they can be asymptomatic and spread it to other people in the household. And that's really the number way, number one way that people are getting COVID is that it's spreading through the household. Yeah. Um, can you get it into the grocery store? Yeah. Can you get it from walking past someone on the street? Yeah. But the chances of getting it that way versus someone that you live with yes. um, are extremely low. And so if you put people in a classroom for eight hours, yes. Monday, Friday, you're increasing their chances that someone, the likelihood of someone getting that. And that's just not a chance that I would want to take with the lives of children. Now let's talk about staff. So the teachers, right? Yes. The people. So, the big one, because I'm a teacher. Yeah. So let's talk about that. They have families too. So they might be managing their own children. What do you do? Let's say we are at home, but they're required to come into work, right? Um, let's say certain schools decide. That's why we need one answer for all of the school systems. It's going to be a challenge because people are having childcare issues. Um, What about if you are immunocompromised? Now, here's the thing. Everyone is susceptible to COVID, but people who are immunocompromised who have other underlying conditions have an increased chance of dying of it. And so that's a distinction. And unfortunately, um, that's happening in more black and brown communities than anywhere. And so what's important is that if you have people who are first-line workers who are more likely to be black or brown, they're more likely to be susceptible. So I'm thinking about people who clean the schools. I'm thinking about people who make sure the safety, um, the security. I'm thinking about teachers, right? And so we have to think about their perspective. Who's living in their home? Who are they putting at risk? Yes. And then think about, um, as well as faculty, at least on the higher ed level, it's even more challenging because at least in a school system, you know where kids are coming from. At a, at a university, you know where they're coming from, but they literally could be from all over the world. And so how are you managing the quarantine process? That's actually been my question to a lot of people, that if you're going to talk about this, how long are you going to quarantine students? And I'd like to see you tell students, um, I just saw this on um, Facebook group of students um, at my university who were saying, how are they going to prevent us from going from dorm room to dorm room. But that's what they said they're asking students to do. And if you've ever been in college, which I know you have, you know that that's part of the joy of hanging out in college is visiting friends on different floors and different dorms, and that's not allowed. So it's gonna be interesting. I don't know how they can prevent that. And unfortunately, the liability is probably gonna be that you're gonna be at more risk and there's probably gonna be a waiver that they're gonna ask you to sign so you can't sue in case you get it. So that's a very long and complex answer yes. to my on reopening the schools. Yes, I mean, there's just so many dynamics and there's so many dimensions to this that it's hard to just, I would say just to focus on one area, right? Like we are talking about, I felt that the announcement in regards to, hey, schools are reopening, it was as if schools were these separate entities from society, right? That's what I heard. And I was just like, they're, they're not, they're not, right? When we think of being in the classroom and those students interacting with their families and their families interacting with others, especially if they're essential workers, it's like you're increasing the risk. And so, um, of course, I would love, I, I really would love that our leadership 
right? Our national leadership would see that. However, I think we really continue. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I, I had interrupted you. I, you know, when, when I hear all of this, the real question I'm asking, because, you know, like today, Disney opened in Florida, yeah. and Florida is now like an epicenter of this. Yeah. And I just think that's insane, right? Um, but what I really ask the question when I say this push to open schools, this push to open everything, what I really hear people saying is that there is this phenomena going on. I don't know how to handle it. How can I create some normalcy in my life? Hmm. And that also, that economic issue as well. How can we make sure our economy still thrives? So that's what I see happening is that local officials, parents, et cetera, they want some type of normalcy. And so what I often tell people is that we're having an ancestral moment right now. Mm -hmm. Thanks to public health over the last 100 years, we haven't had to experience a pandemic. But here we are, 100 years since the last pandemic, and people don't know how to handle this. I think in the 1920s, they had several infectious diseases, many of which we get vaccines for now. Mm -hmm. And so that oh, we need to go under quarantine for six months. People knew that that would happen. They mm -hmm. knew to wear masks and they did it in a way, um, I won't say everybody did it, but it was so normalized then okay. um, in a way that seems so foreign to us now. So I think part of that is factoring into all of this. People want normalcy and they're not used to this. It's not part of what we know or what we've known for generations, but it is in fact part of the human experience. Hmm. Hmm. That's a great perspective. That, that provides a lot of perspective, especially with the normalcy part. We want some sort of normal. And so this is what people are looking towards. So they're trying to find it by any means necessary. Yeah, hmm. and at any risk, even to the lives of our, our kids, our babies, um, and to the lives of ourselves. I've heard so many people say, well, I trust my immune system. And I'm like, I trust mine too, but I don't want to put it in danger, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, yeah, so it's one of those things that, you know, this is, I have a lot of, you know, friends and colleagues who are healthcare professionals and who, people I know who've had it, who've died of it um, since February. And when I hear all of these things. There's so much we don't talk about with this disease, the neurological effects of it, mm -hmm. the fact that people who do get it often have so many other health issues afterwards, mm -hmm. many of whom are, are on wait lists now for lung transplants, which is a very hard oh. organ to get. And so it's not that, oh, I'll get it, it's okay. No, it's like, this could be a lifelong thing for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. The best thing you can do right now what we all should be able to do if we had some kind of national response to this is to stay home. I mean, if we had stayed home for a couple of months, everyone, and done that for a month or two, I mean, even, a, I mean, a month probably could have done it and it, we could have isolated this. And if we can isolate it, we can control it. But yeah. right now it's so widespread that it's going to require like a six month <laughs> stay. And I really don't, and we can't get Americans to stay home one day, right? So, And I, I think, you know, my struggle is, Dr. Barlow, is that I am over here in Europe and I'm here for a, a little bit of a, a little bit more time, but to see the public health response 
here, at least in Germany, to actually see, I know where the COVID-19 stations are for testing. I know what their protocol is. I know what's being done. I know contact tracing is actively being done, right? Like there's no restaurant I'm going to enter that's not gonna ask me for my information. But yet. Yeah, so I will say, yeah, I will say that's being done. I can say that for DC, right? I know here in DC, there are like, free stations you can go to to get tested. Mm -hmm. um, and um, every restaurant, because I still support, I don't eat out a lot, um, but the restaurants I do still support, um, either ordering delivery or when I've gone to them, that is something, they have a whole process, like you stay outside, you go in, you have to show certain things. You don't touch anything. They have your order lined up. So it's very, um, I feel very good about how things have been handled in DC. But the problem is we don't have that that's universal in all the yes. states. So yes. yeah, that can be problematic. Yes. And as you know, it's a struggle to hear stories, especially I have a close friend who is over here in Europe, but her, her children are away in the United States for college or university. And to hear one of them has recently um, had COVID-19, went to the emergency room and no one and, and received the treat or received the test and guidance sort of of what to do afterwards, but they didn't ask questions about who she was living with. They didn't ask, they, she was escorted through the waiting room too. And, and this was, I believe in Arizona and there yeah, was no contact. Yeah. Done, and it was just, it was heart-wrenching to hear because we know that there's others that are susceptible, but yet they're not flagged or being said, hey, you need to come in for testing. So yeah, and that's and that's the and again, that's why we need a nation, a national approach to this. Um, I think there's some places that are handling it well. And that's why I say here where I live as a resident of the District of Columbia, yeah. um, I very good about how Mayor Bowser is handling that, mm -hmm. um, which I need. I think should be discussed because of the fact that we're also the nation's capital. Yeah. Um, but you know, surrounding areas. I mean, I think Maryland and Virginia are doing a, a, a decent job, mm -hmm. um, but their numbers are higher than ours. But they're also bigger than us. Yeah. Um, but I think even when New York was the epicenter, mm -hmm. our numbers initially looked like New York's. But ours stayed low. And I think part of it is when our shutdown happened and all the things that were put into place. And we, we also have a lot of hospitals here, mm -hmm. um, even though they're not you know, all in the Black neighborhoods. That's another discussion. Um, mm -hmm. But we do have a lot of hospitals, so we haven't reached that capacity level. Mm -hmm. And even when we were nearing that, it never was to the point that some of these hospitals I'm hearing about in Texas and also in New York when it happened earlier, they were nearing capacity. So I feel pretty good about that. But the spread is definitely in Maryland. It's definitely in Virginia, for sure. Mm, yeah. Wow, there's, there's just so many, there's so much insight in what you're sharing. And it's great to hear that DC is doing well, especially when it comes to COVID-19, the response and the systems that are already in place. And I mean, and we're echoing the same thing where I'm just like, man, this should be nationwide. Right. So the, the success stories that we're having at the local or the state level, we should be having that nationally. So I'm really hoping for an approach to that um, eventually in the future. 
and I'm sure we I'm sure we yeah. can go we can go and talk a lot about that too. <laughs> but I, I'm, yeah, I'm just, well, I think people yeah people need to realize. Sorry to cut you off. Mm -hmm. I just think people need to realize um, that they need to wear their mask. They need to really um, consider others. We are much, our culture is very individualized, yes. but this requires us to be more collectivist. And mm -hmm. that's not inherently natural for a lot of um, folks in this country. And so we have to think of others and really, like I said, wear a mask, wash your hands, um, yeah. and be mindful. I used to find it offensive if I saw someone of another race who would go to the other side of the street when I was walking down the street. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times, you know, dealing with racial issues um, and racism in general, um, I would find that offensive. It's like, oh, they don't want to walk near me. But now I find it offensive if they come near me, right? <laughs> you know, we've, it's a different world now and how we're thinking about um, how we interact with one another. Wow. And so I, I wanted, I, as a public health professional, I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about the numbers that we're seeing. Right. So if you I've been looking at John John Hopkins um, School of Medicine and looking at their numbers and of course the caseload or the number of cases in the United States are about three million. I haven't checked lately, but three million and probably adding on each day. Now, if you look on there and go deeper in, you'll see that they, they are also they have mortalities, the mortality and then they have recovery. So right now what's being played up is the recoveries. And so how should the American public view that? Because in the view, it's a matter of, well, our mortality rate is low and our recoveries, we have more recoveries. We have a lot of cases, but we have more recoveries. So it's sort of being, I'm, I'm seeing it play out in terms of coming from, especially politicians um, about it. So how should we view that? So that, I love all these questions. Um, that's another complex question because remember, this is a novel virus. In other words, like I said earlier, we're learning so much about it. We don't know the long-term, <clears throat> excuse me, the long-term effects of this, okay? So what does that mean? That means someone gets it, they recover. We don't know what it means for them to have the antibodies. Um, later in life, we don't know if that's gonna be related to something. And so that's worth noting. We also know that people aren't building up much of a antibody, um, a, the antibodies that are required. Mm -hmm. um, typically, people between 60 and 80%. And what I'm hearing from initial studies, it's been about 20 to 30%. So a lot of people are putting their confidence in vaccines and all these studies and this push to have a vaccine. Well, I'm a bit concerned if a vaccine is going to work mm -hmm. because um, if, you're, if you don't naturally produce antibodies for it, how are they gonna make sure that the vaccine does, right? Mm -hmm. And it might, be, it might be a vaccine that you have to take every two to three months. And I don't know who's gonna sign up for that for the rest of their life, right? Mm -hmm. And we know the implications of that in black communities, vaccines and testing, et cetera. So that's there. I think that's important context to answer this question. Because when we think about diseases, like even with the flu, we want to think about what can our resources hold, right? Can our hospitals, for the most extreme cases, can they take care of the people um, in our area? So that's why it's also a census year. So it's yeah. important that people take their census because they decide how many hospitals need in an area. 
So if people don't complete the census, we, we're undercounting. And so then when we need more hospital beds, we don't have the money for that. Congress, you know, this is something that's constitutionally mandated, the, the census. And so Congress uses their budget based on the census mm -hmm. for the 10 years. And so this, like I said, it's a complicated question. So if we don't have enough beds for the most extreme cases, what ends up happening is that they're making those decisions that people were scared of earlier in the spring that I know happens in Italy that people were saying we're only gonna, we're gonna pick and choose who can get a ventilator or not. Mm -hmm. We don't wanna be in that situation. So the best way not to be in that situation is to prevent it from even happening, right? But people are still going out doing whatever. So yeah, people are contracting it. And for those who do have extreme cases, and there are also 30 different strains, mm. these. And about four or five of the strains are the ones that cause some of these issues. Mm. Um, why is this important? Because one, we wanna prevent people from getting going, having to be in the hospital. Um, what we're hearing now are new reports in Texas that more people are dying at home. They're not even making it to the hospital, right? Mm -hmm. So they're having all these deaths that they're finding at home, which this happened in Italy and um, in China as well, that they had all these unaccounted deaths that they can't say were COVID, but what other reason to have so many at this time? And so that started to happen in Texas. And so we want to be able to prevent these things from happening. Mm -hmm. So even people are recovering, I'm paying attention to how many are dying and how many new cases there are. Mm -hmm. The fact that is having like 10,000 new cases a day concerns me because it increases their risk for pe more people dying, more people um, not recovering, and more people needing these services potentially. Yes. And the best thing we can do to prevent all of that is to prevent people from getting it isolated. And we do that through contact tracing, through prevention, through people you know, doing their best to stay at home as much as possible. I still go out every day and walk and get my exercise, and I still live somewhat of a normal life, but you can do that by being safe and mm -hmm. considering others. Mm -hmm. Yes. That, yes. Oh, it's sobering to just hear <laughs> what you're sharing, right? It's, I think there's so much um, caught up in, I would say, a bit of a media frenzy and, and when you hear those voices or hear those voices from professionals and you hear the level-headedness of it and you hear the wisdom behind it, it's, it's, it gives you pause for reflection in a moment to really think, wow, there's another point that makes sense. So um, yeah, <laughs> thank you for sharing that. I mean, there's just so much right now that is, I think, partisan. <laughs> and also politicize that it makes it hard to hear voices that are saying, hey, this is the issue, right? So. Yeah, and science is, yeah, science is being politicized. And, you know, truth be told, science has always been politicized. When I think about eugenics, I think about how science has been used historically, and it's happening again now, the fact that leadership um, is not recognizing what scientists, what healthcare professionals. Um, one thing I didn't mention is the fact that early on in this, and in many cases it's still happening, a lot of healthcare professionals don't have the proper protective gear, yeah. right? Um, mm -hmm. The PPE is what they call the acronym for it. Um, and why is that important? Um, because 
if you're a doctor and you see multiple COVID patients and you're wearing the same N95 mask um, all week or all month in some cases, I mean, that's another potential spread yes. of the disease from people who need it. And when I think about them as staff, my really good friend um, is a nurse and, and works for the American Nurses Association and has talked a lot about this. A lot of nurses are just walking away. Mm. They don't get protected and they say it's not worth putting their families at risk. And they're walking away from their jobs. So what happens? I'm concerned about the workforce. What yeah. happens have a generation of healthcare workers who are frustrated. They want to do their work. They want to do their job, but they're not protected. And if they yes. speak out, they're fired. And yes. that's happening. Yes. And I think that that trend is what we will potentially see in education. Oh, for sure. Sure. Yeah. You know, I look at the unemployment rates here. Um, there are a lot of people unemployed. And yeah. A lot of the, the um, and this is all happening when schools are supposed to open, right? Mm -hmm. So the end of July for people who were unemployed and got the extra benefits through the CARES Act, those benefits are expiring the end of this month. Yes. Um, evictions that were on a stay mm -hmm. because they could not pay their rent or even maybe foreclose, they're all at this point um, expiring this month. And so all of this is happening yes. when we're sending students back. And I think it's, I think August is going to be an interesting month because what happens, we know what happens with human behavior when people are hungry and they don't have money. Yes. To see increased crime. And that, that concerns me yeah. um, because it could be chaotic and there doesn't seem to be a national response to any of this. Yes. And there's so many issues that are converging um, on each other. And it, I mean, we have the economics, you're bringing in the economics, then we have the health, and then we have the education, and all of these are coming together. And it, it's going to be a, an incredibly difficult time, especially once we approach August. Um, from what I'm understanding, now we're getting a little bit in the political spectrum, there should be, there was another bill that went through in regards to a second CARES package, but I haven't really kept up with the progress of that package. So Yeah, um, I was keeping up. I lost track of that one. I know one was passed, I think, in the House, but the Senate is still did that it might not pass through. So yeah, there's some issues there about, you know, what people get, what corporations get, um, yes. what farmers get, et cetera, and the supports mm -hmm. that are needed for hospitals and, and workers. Yes. Whew. I know, I, I really thank you for taking the time out to speak to me. There's so much more <laughs> that I would like to dive in and, and to discuss. Um, however, I know sometimes it's okay to just focus in on one area at a time. Um, I really appreciate you bringing in the public health perspective. We need to hear that, right? We need to hear from our public health professionals. Right. And not just and I think a lot of times we just hear these stances. Right. Here's our stance. Well, we believe it's best for kids to be back in school. We've heard that over the last two weeks. However, we, we I'm like, where are our public health professionals? Right. So we had the AAP come out, but I'm like, where's APHA? Right. No, I mean, they're saying things. I think that the message isn't always amplified. So they are saying things. They've been holding webinars, so I encourage you. I'm happy to send it to you. There oh, was yeah. one 
No, I, yeah. I, I was speaking in regards to like APHA oh, statements. Hey, we think that it should be schools reopening, but then we have another organization oh. come out and say yeah. it. And then that voice is amplified over that of the people who are on the ground doing the work. And I think that that yeah. was. So. Yeah, I think what the, some of the challenge with all of this is that, um, you know, we, it's not in our nature, and I will say it's changing because I think the last few months have changed all of us. A lot of public health professionals, we do the work. We're not thinking about talking about doing the work, right? So now people want us to talk about it. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that we're all trying to figure out how to do and how to do that most effectively to get the messages across. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Berlow, for just speaking with me um, and taking time to speak with the Joy of Learning podcast. I really appreciate the time that you shared with us. I love it. This has been wonderful. Take care. Thank you for listening to our recent episode. I would love to hear feedback from you. You can send an email to info at takejoyandlearning.com. I look forward to hearing from you.